Hi, everyone. Welcome to Oscar Wild, a podcast about film, always counting down to this year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rorkraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And welcome back to another Contenders episode. This is our second one. We'll only be adding four new movies compared to the episode and the categories we talked about last week. So a lot of repeats here, but different categories. Going over what we'll talk about today, we have makeup and hairstyling, costume design, production design, and cinematography. I think last week we talked a lot about the technical elements that make a movie sound good. And this week we're talking about a lot of the elements that make a movie look good. And costume design, cinematography, these are categories every year that I'm always excited to learn more about. And some of my favorite movies are included in these categories. So I'm excited to dig into those today. Yeah, I guess breaking them down that way, the categories last week, I could understand more of, I think. But this week, we have so many artistic elements, it was a little hard for me in researching and like understanding how they put costumes together and like what elements go into it. It was it kind of sounded like a different language to me. But I think it was just as fascinating. And how people got involved on these films was really, really interesting. It's so funny that you say that because that was me last week. I feel like learning (laughs) going over visual effects is always for me a hard thing. So let's get right into our first category, makeup and hairstyling. Our guild here, we have the Makeup Artists and Hairstylists Guild. Their ceremony will be on February 11th. Our nominees here, we have All Quiet on the Western Front, The Batman, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Elvis, and The Whale. Starting off with All Quiet on the Western Front, our team here, we have Heike Merker. This is her first nomination. And Linda Eisenamorova. This is her first nomination as well. I was really excited about this nomination because we never get war movies in this category, but I think that this nomination was very deserving, especially thinking about how they really had to experiment with building the look of mud on Paul's face. And they're in so many different settings that have mud or dirt or wetter mud or drier dirt that falls on them. So they got to experiment a lot with the textures and how they layered that on the faces too. And we'll mention our favorite use of hair and makeup in the film in a second. And that's one of mine, but just hearing her talk about it. And again, there are videos that show behind the scenes of her working via Netflix. And it's just so fascinating to watch. And it's a war movie and there are things flying and that may seem easy in a way that There are these natural elements, but there is still such a technical side to the makeup itself. So what was your favorite use of hair and makeup in the film? So mine was when Paul is in the crater with the other soldier, and at one point his face gets pushed into a puddle, and he comes out, and half of his face is covered in mud, and it's like thick mud, and the scene is a few minutes long, and over that time frame, you see the mud slowly drying, and... I think this is just one representation, again, of how intense the makeup alone will make these battle sequences feel and look. And something that a lot of the crew is talking about was making you smell this film, too. So even the textures and the colors that they use of the makeup and blood or the darker dirt, it really puts you in that setting so quickly and so brutally. I agree. I figured that we would both be talking about the use of mud on Paul's face, but 
I wanted to bring up a point that Hike America made in that video that we can link in the description of the episode, which is that the soldiers are so covered throughout the film. You know, they have their uniforms and we really only see their faces a lot of times. So that makeup work on their faces with the mud had to be so spot on to convey what they were going through as the war progressed. And I love how the makeup works so well with the cinematography, which we'll talk about later, because the way that James Friend, the cinematographer, lights Paul's face in one of the scenes where we have this like blue, green, gray effect, Paul looks like a ghost because of the work between our DP and our makeup team. So I love the collaboration there, and I feel like they did a great job of just showing really the hell of World War I. And we talk about makeup on the face, but she even goes into detail about teeth splints that were made to darken the teeth themselves over the time period of the war. So a lot of elements. I love them all. Go watch these videos. We will link you. I was saving that comment for you. I was hoping that oh. you would bring that up <laughs> as the dentist. <laughs> Obviously fascinating to me. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. Next up, we have the Batman, the team here. Naomi Dunn, this is her third nomination. Mike Marino, this is his second. And Mike Fontaine, this is his first nomination. What do you think of the makeup here in The Batman? I think that the makeup here in The Batman is excellent work. I think that specifically when you think of this movie and you think of the makeup work, you think about Colin Farrell's transformation into the Penguin. Colin Farrell has Mm -hmm. been working the award circuit this year. He was in some great films, including this one, but also After Yang and The Banshees of Inisherin, of course. And he's known for being a great actor, but he's also known for having this like beautiful face and those gorgeous eyebrows and eyes. And here he is fully transformed into the Penguin. And we talk about transformations a lot, but one thing that I really enjoyed learning from Mike Marino and Mike Fontaine was that they were actually mentored by Dick Smith, who is this legendary makeup artist. He worked on The Godfather, The Exorcist, and Taxi Driver, which are these 70s films that we talked about having an influence on Matt Reeves's version of The Batman as the 70s-inspired film, but they were mentored by him, and they really enjoy creating these extreme characters that feel grounded in realism at the same time, and I loved hearing that when they were creating the look of the Penguin, they were inspired by Fredo in The Godfather. That was one of their reference points. Hmm. And you can sort of start to see it in his face, but I think it always comes back to the character. They're not creating something that just feels like a caricature of a villain that we know. Mm -hmm. He feels like a real person with a story. I also loved how... In wanting to separate this Batman from previous iterations, they wanted Rob to look different. So he had that eye makeup on that when he took the mask off was still there. And we also saw the grit and the sweat. And I think that mirrored really well with this version of Gotham and the city feel that we get throughout the entire movie. I think it's also mirrored in different characters like Paul Dano's character, the Riddler, and how scary that is. But yeah, I think it comes back to the Penguin and when I was watching, not realizing this was Colin Farrell. I will get into this with my favorite use in a second, but what was your favorite use of hair and makeup in the film? 
I think it's tempting to say Colin Farrell as the penguin because it is a full transformation, but I have to go with my heart here and what I remember loving from the movie. And that was Zoe Kravitz's look as Selena Kyle. Mm-hmm. I think that her eye makeup, it's this sort of new take on the cat eye, which is such a well-known look with liquid eyeliner, but they give her this 90s Kate Moss inspired look that I really like with the makeup, um, all done by Pat McGrath. But yeah, I, I just, I love the use of her eyeliner and how even when she's not in the cat suit, she feels mm-hmm. like Catwoman. You feel that depth of her character there through the makeup. And with the costumes as well, I think that even deepens her feline nature. So the makeup really added to that. This was one of the aspects where I was doing research and there were certain articles where they listed all the products they used. And I'm like, this Mm -hmm. is way over my head. Oh my God. See, I I love it. I I have a really good one coming up later that's going to make you laugh. (laughs) So one other fact about the Penguin, because this was my favorite use of makeup in the film, is that when they were creating his look, they were trying to give these subliminal bird-like penguin characteristics to his face. So yes, Colin Farrell's signature eyebrows, but they kind of made them flare up on the sides like an actual penguin. And then they gave him a beak-like nose with beak-shaped nostrils or like how a bird mouth actually looks, which is crazy. And I totally Mm -hmm. see it now, but he had five pounds of makeup And there was this 10-pound prosthetic suit as well, which initially took three hours to apply. And later, they got faster at it. And it only took an hour and a half. Like, imagining that prep time even is insane. And we'll get to more of that in other films. But still, that time just Mm -hmm. astounds me. I completely agree. I cannot imagine being in a makeup chair for that long. (laughs) Sounds (laughs) truly hellish. (laughs) Next up, we have Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Our team here, we have Camille Friend. It's our first nomination and Joel Harlow. This is his fourth nomination and he previously won for Star Trek. What did you think of the makeup and hairstyling in Black Panther Wakanda Forever? This was one of the first aspects I really loved and we'll talk about costumes and I think they fit really well together. One of the difficulties for both of them as well was shooting in water. And we talked about this last week with this film and with Avatar The Way of Water. But it was getting those looks to stay fresh and not to bleed once they were underwater, which sounds really difficult. The different looks, too, they introduced this other tribe, the Talakanil, and they based all of these looks on different cultures, either Mayan or even Senegalese and the warriors. So I love all the different hair types that were used, the textures, the different cultures that are represented in different ways through both the makeup and the hairstyle. I feel like I learned a lot about who these characters and people were just by looking at what they were wearing or how they looked. Yeah, I agree with you about how well the makeup and hairstyling and the costume design work together to give you a good understanding of these characters from different cultures compared to the first Black Panther. And I liked learning also that how important hairstyling was to them on this movie and how they had fans who loved the hairstyles in the first film and they wanted to honor that and 
stick with a lot of the hairstyles that they use there, but also adapt them because our characters are evolving and the story is progressing forward as well. One thing that I thought was really interesting was how they used the air. They mentioned using an airbrush to style the different characters, specifically the Talokanil people and the Talokan women, in addition to giving these characters that blue hue. They have a lot of facial jewelry in the makeup, which I think is really cool. And thinking about how they had to, like you mentioned, have a look that could work on land and underwater, I thought was really cool. Yeah. And then also with them, they have these prosthetic gills that they put on and they're in full body paint makeup, which I love. My favorite look, which I also like from the first movie, was just the warrior face paint and the dots that they have on their skin. I think it's such a simple look, but also traditional to African culture. And it also feels very futuristic. So I love that it really puts us in Wakanda so easily. Like we understand who these people are, even though it's a totally different world. Like some of that look that Michael B. Jordan had in Black Panther was mirrored in different characters in Wakanda Forever. So I like how they mm. updated things too and how they, with the time passing, like five years being passed since the first film, how they updated the makeup and wanted to show how these characters aged over that time. Next up is Elvis. Our team here, we have Mark Coulier. This is his fourth nomination. He previously won for The Iron Lady and The Grand Budapest Hotel. Jason Baird, this is his first nomination. And Aldo Signoretti, this is his fourth nomination. So Elvis won it Critics' Choice. I just want to mention that. What did you like about the makeup and hairstyling in Elvis? I think that there is a lot to love about the makeup and hairstyling in Elvis just because there is so much of it. One thing I loved hearing when I was researching this was that Boslerman said specifically that the hair had to be perfect. Hair is very important to him in his films. One of his lines that the crew really liked was when he would say, quote, the hair has spoken so we can roll the cameras. <laughs> <laughs> he would always say taller, taller, taller. Yes. The higher the hair, the closer to God. That's like the Southern... <laughs> Southern thing. (laughs) And that's definitely the case with Elvis's hair, but also with Priscilla's hair. I think when you think of people like Elvis and Priscilla Presley, you think of that high hair, that volume that's there, and that black hair. So they had to dye their hair to make sure it got that signature black. But I also, I, th- I don't know, I thought that the work on Elvis and on Priscilla in particular is really strong. And especially, I think, having Elvis evolve from being this kid in the 50s, where they gave Austin a prosthetic chin and cheekbones for mm-hmm. him in that period, and then having him evolve into the 70s when he's in Vegas and he has gained weight, he's aged, so they had to like add more prosthetics to him. It's pretty complicated work, I think, to tell someone's life story, someone who's so well-known through makeup and hair, when it's so important to that person in real life, too, to recreating that look. Totally. The hair, I think, is the standout here. I think the makeup is, too, because you really do notice... 
Elvis through the different time periods of his life. And we'll get to this in costumes as well and how they wanted to differentiate those three periods. But with the hair, they dyed Butler's hair for the 50s. And then after that, for the 60s and the 70s, he wore wigs. Sometimes DeJong as Priscilla would be wearing two wigs simultaneously. So it really is about the hair. And all the background extras, they had 450 wigs for these people to wear to look just like they did for example, in the comeback special in 68, they wanted to shoot it, if not shot for shot, they needed the audience to look the exact same and with the costumes as well. So in looking like Elvis, I think it's a full transformation. And we'll talk about Austin later on a different episode and how he transformed. But I think these components and bringing that to life really, really worked. I completely agree. What was your favorite look in the movie? I think one of my favorites is the comeback special because as this turning point in his life, he still has all of those signature elements that he loves. And I think the hair especially looks really good here. And I think the hair looks especially good here. How about you? What was your favorite use of hair and makeup? It has to be Priscilla's double-decker wig. It's just so good. (laughs) I have always been obsessed with this woman's hair, and I feel like it is just... it is so perfect for that time period and Mm -hmm. for someone that Elvis would have been drawn to. So I have to go with all of Priscilla's looks, but in particular her hair. I do have to mention, though, that my favorite thing that I discovered when reading about the hair and makeup work on Elvis was that they used my favorite go-to eyeliner on Austin for... (laughs) Elvis. It's a great Chanel waterproof pen. So if anyone is curious, I will share that on Twitter as well. But yes, it is a great eyeliner. It never like you can cry through it and it will stay perfect the whole day. Highly recommend. Yeah. Next up, we have the whale. Our team here, Adrian Moreau. This is his second nomination. Judy Chin. This is her first nomination. And Anne-Marie Bradley. This is her first nomination. What do you think of the makeup in The Whale? I think the most fascinating thing is that this is the first major feature that used all digital prosthetic makeup, which is not something, again, I know anything about. But it took them 12 weeks to build the suit. And then I commend Aronofsky for his dedication in wanting Fraser to have a specific look because he wasn't happy with the suit at first because he really wanted Fraser to be able to move in it. So they finally got it to work and for him to freely move. But I think the logistics of that in and of itself is really shocking and commendable. What about you? What did you like about the makeup and hairstyling here? Well, I thought it was interesting in just comparing, for example, the work in The Whale to The Batman, where the team went and they were able to sit down with Colin and build a clay mold of his face. And here, like you mentioned with the new technology, because this took place during COVID, they weren't able to sit down with Fraser to do this. So everything was made using a 3D printer. And they went to scan Brendan Fraser's body with an iPad in like in his driveway so they weren't even (laughs) able to just like sit down with him and actually touch his face and get a feel for what to build off of it was all just done via 3d printing which is interesting Mm. and 
I do think, and I want to point out, it's a little tricky, I think, to talk about the makeup and the whale and to formulate my thoughts on whether or not I like the use of the makeup and the whale. Yeah, it really does focus on the suit itself. When I think back to hairstyles or other uses of makeup on the different characters, I I kind of am at a loss of words. Like, I like remembering that Hong Chao didn't have much makeup on. It felt very real. And maybe all of that, like the different characters too, like everything was very natural and they gave it that look. I think in that way, that's impressive, but it really does come down to the suit and you really just watching Brendan Fraser and his performance the entire time. Okay, so what would your write-in vote be? My write-in vote for this category would be David Cronenberg's Crimes of the Future, which was on the shortlist for the category, specifically for Ear Man, the mm-hmm. <laughs> man in the, Love the film who has his mouth and eyes stitched shut and all of these ears all over his body. There are also just a lot of intricate new designs that are used that could only come from the mind of David Cronenberg and his team. And I think there's a lot of room for horror movies or for movies with body horror to be featured in this category. A lot of times we just Mm, go for prosthetics or period film, but horror has a wealth of options. Yeah. Continuing with horror, I would put an X from this year, which I just loved as a horror film, but specifically with Mia Goth totally transforming. She played Maxine and Pearl. So really watching the movie, you don't think that old character is her, but then you see the videos online of her putting on all the prosthetics and the time that took and that really wiry wig. Like, oh, it just looks so good. And when you see those characters interacting, it's like, wow, just incredible. I love that. And what do you think should win? Here we go again. I'm going with All Quiet on the Western Front. (laughs) I was just so amazed with their work and hearing about their process that I think it totally should win. What about you? What do you think should win? I think I'm actually going to say Black Panther Wakanda Forever. I like the work in All Quiet on the Western Front too. But yeah, I feel in a similar way that you did, I think, compelled to get away from the traditional prosthetic work that we usually see here and go with something that I think was a mix of contemporary, naturalistic, real everyday life looks that were really fashionable, but also these fantasy inspired looks. So I'll go with Black Panther Wakanda forever. You bring up an interesting point because recently at the Oscars, we have had winners be mostly of prosthetics and that being related to a lead actor, actress win. So my question Mm -hmm. was like, will it be Austin Butler and Elvis winning makeup or Brendan Fraser and the whale winning makeup. Like last year we had Jessica Chastain and the eyes of Tammy Faye won. So like, Uh I feel like that's where we're leading to, but things are kind of still up in the air. I think if we're going to do a little predicting, I think that Austin Butler gets the Mark Coulier magic and vice versa. And they both win Elvis and Elvis. Yeah. That's kind of where I'm. Mm hmm. Yeah, we'll see, though. A lot still has to happen. And just having the best picture nom there mm-hmm. and the costume mention, makeup yep. and costumes go together sometimes. It just feels right to me. Absolutely. Yeah. So let's talk about costume design. Our guild here, we have the Costume Designers Guild. This ceremony is on February 27th. 
And just generally in the past, sci-fi fantasy has helped voters choose a path when the category is stacked with the other category of period designs. If you look at like Fantastic Beasts versus Mad Max Fury Road, last year at the Oscars, they did correlate. So we had Cruella amongst Dune and Coming to America nominated at the Guild and then Cruella won the Oscar. So yeah, it's just to look at the different guild categories but our nominees here we have babylon black panther wakanda forever elvis everything everywhere all at once and mrs harris goes to paris so with babylon the costume designer is mary zofries and this is her fourth nomination what are some of your favorite looks from this movie so mary zofries had a major undertaking here there are over seven thousand costumes in the movie so it's a major job i think anytime you're building an epic (laughs) film there's a lot that goes into it it's not just you know the major looks on our main characters like that red dress that's on margot robbie's nelly or anything like that it really is dressing all of the background extras as well and these costumes weren't exactly what i would expect from a 1920s film they're quite different, and that is what they were going for. So I know that Zofries and Chazelle had conversations that he didn't want to see anything that he'd seen in other films about the 1920s, and I think that shows. But I will say that my favorite costumes in the movie were costumes that felt a bit more period correct. I really liked everything that Lady Feiju was wearing, so her mm-hmm. Marlena Dietrich-inspired suit that she wears at the beginning when she's performing. I liked a lot of Jack Conrad's looks. So when we first meet him in the film, he's wearing a tux, but then later on he's wearing a lot of sweaters, much more like sportswear, casual wear. And she mentioned that that was important too, because he was already a movie star. So he didn't need to dress up all the time. He he could be much more casual. So I would say that I would pick the costumes for those characters. I love those. I think being period correct made this film feel really unique i like how she incorporated this like liberating feeling into the clothes and women's fashion in order to mirror like women's rights and their new freedoms of that time so i think that is really shown firstly in nelly's red party dress i love the look i love that bold color which really exemplifies who nelly is and and her passion of wanting to be in this industry i also loved all of Catherine Waterston's silk outfits. I think that uh, look is just yes. so decadent. <laughs> Especially the pink dress, but also that bluish suit that she has on at home. Mm-hmm. Oh, just so divine. And I think she looks and plays that part so well. You know that I would wear every <laughs> single thing she wears in this movie. Yes. I was obsessed with all of her looks. <laughs> I love them. Some of Nellie's looks were hard for me, I will admit. I didn't Mm -hmm. really quite understand them, but all of Catherine Waterston's looks were just so, so perfect. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. In the vomiting scene, like, yes, Nellie is wearing this very (laughs) different kind of dress where Mm -hmm. it's like this higher neckline and you can't see any skin on like every other dress she would want to be wearing herself, but... I mean, you have to admire their craft because there were three of those dresses because of what was happening and each (laughs) took a hundred hours to complete. So everything is handmade. Like it's just also, I feel like for her, for Mary to see it be (laughs) (laughs) disgraced, it's like, 
God, I feel like my heart would break inside a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would be pretty sad as well. <laughs> okay, next we have Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Our costume designer here is the legendary Ruth E. Carter. She has four nominations and one recently for Black Panther. What were some of your favorite looks from this movie? I really love everything Shuri is wearing. And I think that's in part to her character transformation and in taking over after T'Challa and Chadwick Boseman's character. But even like when she's in a tracksuit, like I love that look, that retro 80s look that they give it. And I love how they updated the actual Black Panther suit when she wears that. It gives this flair that her character has when she's not in the suit and kind of like Selena's character from the Batman, she has this very feline appearance. So again, it's incorporating these real African designs and actually modifying the images from the comics, which I really like Ruth Carter's approach in that way. Mm-hmm. What about you? What were some of your favorites? I really liked everything that everyone was wearing at the memorial for T'Challa. So all of the white ensembles. And I like these looks, I think, too, because Carter was really purposeful about how modern she wanted Wakanda to... She said specifically, Black Panther Wakanda Forever is not a period piece. So she wanted to show that Wakanda was this place where people were embracing modern contemporary fashion, but also ways of life. So she had some of the characters wearing Birkenstocks. I just, I love the different headpieces that the characters are wearing and just how the characters, when they're dancing, move in these costumes. I feel like they really connect with the way that grief and memory are described in the movie too. So I really liked those. And I also liked everything that Namor was wearing. So just all of the jewelry and the earrings, everything like that. I thought that that was... That was Mm -hmm. a really cool way to add to his character and to show his pride for his community as well. And one more comment about the water is that they had to add weights to the dresses and the different garments because they wanted it to look like it was moving naturally in the water. So Ruth Carter was like all up for this challenge of working in water. And after the shoot, she was like, please never again, because it was (laughs) just so difficult. And I totally understand that. Like, put me back on land, please. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So many water movies this year. We're we're almost done. (laughs) Yes. One more water reference today. Okay, next up we have Elvis. The costume designer here is Catherine Martin. This is her fourth nomination, and she previously won for Moulin Rouge and The Great Gatsby. Fun fact here, she is Baz Luhrmann's wife, which totally surprised me when I heard this fact. So I think the fact that she talks about of having this really family feel on the set to the crew, this exemplifies that, obviously, but I love how she talks about her experience with Boz. So what were some of your favorite costumes from Elvis? Catherine Martin is incredible. So she's nominated in three categories this year. Costume design, production design, and best picture because she's a producer on Elvis. Mm -hmm. So just amazing. Love Love Catherine Martin. I think her work is always incredible. But one thing that I thought was fascinating that I had never thought about before that she talked about in reference to 
the costume design for the movie is that she went back into the Graceland archive and looked at, you know, learned a lot about Elvis's family and his history. But one thing that she learned was that his parents were products of the Great Depression and they were very frugal, right, as a response to that. And so she learned that all of Elvis's fashion choices, those were things that he came up with on his own. Like he didn't have that sort of those extravagant influences in his life. He wasn't, you know, taking things from their closets or anything like that. He was learning all of that and creating his own image before he could have a personal stylist or anything like that. That was all him. You know, especially when you think about today, a lot of pop stars and musicians, they have people dressing them. They have people creating those looks for him. And he didn't have that. So... I think that the way she used the costumes in the movie just speak to a further understanding of Elvis as a person and his background. Mm -hmm. My favorite looks in the movie, this will also surprise no one, and I noticed this right when I saw the movie and I started reading about it then, was that Catherine Martin collaborated with Prada and Miu Miu to create new looks for Priscilla that were inspired by the time. So you have these really cool mod looks of the 60s, and then you have some 70s inspired looks that we get, but they're inspired by her and the style icon that she was, but they're also brand new and fresh. They're not recreations. So I like the way that she thinks about costume design and fashion as a way to create something new that is inspired by the past. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I liked learning that about Priscilla's character, too. With Elvis, I think it was more they wanted to stay true to him. So they did look through the archives for him, and they wanted to actually show what he had worn during those televised shows and concerts. But the problem here is that they had to adjust the proportions from Elvis to Austin, and they didn't want it to look costumey. I looked this up. Elvis and Austin are about the same height. From what I found, they were both six foot, but I think Austin was a bit skinnier. And as Elvis put on weight throughout his life, they had to adjust the proportions of like, say the 68 special again, that leather suit. And that's one of my favorite looks because of how it looks on Austin. So they ended up having to like adjust the collar and kind of tighten things up a bit again with this transformation of Elvis. And we'll talk about Martin again in the next category with production design but in making Elvis look different through these three decades of being more rebellious in the 50s and then having this more classical look in the 60s after he served in the army and he was becoming a movie star and then transitioning into this 70s superstar and kind of like the leather suit I also love the white jumpsuit that he wears yeah The leather is definitely one of my other favorite looks. I think he looks great in it, and you understand exactly why people were so drawn to Elvis. Mm -hmm. Our next nominee, we have Everything Everywhere All at Once. Our costume designer is Shirley Carrada. This is her first nomination. She is a personal stylist. She's an artist. She's a costume designer. She has collaborated with so many amazing fashion designers for their lookbooks and their runway shows. She styled Billie Eilish for her tours. But I think she has, she just has this really interesting story of being this Japanese American woman and how she has had to work really hard to 
get where she is today and how she brings a lot of her personal story and her experiences into the designs that she made for everything everywhere all at once. So I love this nomination. What were some of your favorite looks from the movie? What I love about this movie is that there's so much variety and there are certain themes in ways that they interconnect these universes by sharing pieces like Deirdre's cardigan in both the IRS normal world and the hot dog hand world. But I just love that when they started in pre-production, her chat with the Daniels, they said, let's create costumes that people are going to wear on Halloween. And I think they (laughs) totally did that. One of those looks being that really elegant white look that Jobu wears, the like Mm -hmm. ornate bagel dress. But I also love Evelyn's gown that she has on to the movie premiere. I just think it's one of the most stunning things I've seen this year. So again, just the variety and how they really connect to the characters. Like it was funny reading how the actors were like, ooh, like, they didn't like the clothes, but they felt that they fit the characters so, so well. And they were like, yeah, this this really mm-hmm. works. This tracks. I also love the ornate bagel dress, as you described. I love that <laughs> white look with the Elizabethan collar. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's perfect for that scene, especially because around them, the production design is also all white. So I think that looks really good there. I thought one thing that was really interesting was that Karada, she grew up going to this very white preppy school and she channeled that experience into making a lot of Jobu or Joy's looks. Specifically, she talks about the preppy golf costume that Jobu is wearing (laughs) (laughs) and how she thought that that costume really exemplified this perfect Asian daughter stereotype of being preppy, of being a good athlete, and being the perfect version of what your mother would want, but then switching over to that Elvis costume <laughs> as a way to rebel against her mother. Mm-hmm. She, I, I really liked her talking about that and how her costumes, Karata made them feminine and masculine at the same time. Playing with gender expression in those costumes was really important Mm -hmm. to her. And another look that I love, I just really love Evelyn's red set that she wears at the New Year's party at the laundromat. I think that's so pretty. I just, I love it. And Michelle looks so, so beautiful in red. Mm -hmm. Okay, our next nominee is Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. The costume designer is Jenny Beaven. She has 12 nominations and has won for A Room with a View. Mad Max Fury Road, and Cruella. What are some of your favorite looks from this movie? I'm so happy that you finally watched Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, <laughs> a movie that I think is just absolutely delightful and can cheer anyone up on a bad day. But I have a lot of favorite looks. I think that the fashion show scene when Mrs. Harris first arrives at Dior, which is a total replica of what happens in Phantom Thread. It's like if Phantom Thread was on Disney Plus. Like this is yeah, how that's it feels. What I thought. <laughs> <laughs> but I love all of those Dior looks because it takes you right back to 1950s Paris and that Dior style then in Paris is so well known and I think she channeled that perfectly here and I love that Jenny Bevan, yes, she did replicate a lot of the styles from the period specifically, so she went to the Dior archives and looked at those costumes, but she also made brand new designs that were inspired by Dior. And 
people couldn't tell the difference. <laughs> that mm-hmm. speaks to her abilities as a costume designer, of course, and just her creativity. But Venus and Temptation, the two dresses that we see Leslie Manville in that she loves from the fashion show, I feel like those are perfect. The red and the green. Oh, I want to know which one you prefer now that you've seen the movie, but I personally like the green the best. And I also like the way that she dresses Natasha, the model, Mm -hmm. because she was inspired by Audrey Hepburn in Funny Face. And anything related to Audrey Hepburn, I love immediately. The actress really looks like her too. I thought it was almost uncanny. But yeah, I loved her. I loved how yeah delightful this film was. My favorite fact was that when Jenny Beaven signed on, she was like, I'm not a fashion person. So she wasn't like that excited for it. But as she started to go through the archives and the looks and understand what this world was, she was like immediately drawn into it because fashion was so integral to the story. So I love how it really changed her way of thinking about fashion and like that is what she does and we know she's a giant in this industry so my favorite look was one of natasha's looks called the vaudeville and it was the striped black and white hoop skirt that she came out in i mean obviously everything looks elegant but it was just so beautiful and to think of all these looks being from the 50s it still felt fresh like again this isn't my expertise but I loved that fashion show and watching along with Ada of all of these dresses coming out and feeling odd like she did. Yeah, you can you can really feel that sense of wonder in her eyes, which is mm-hmm. why I really like the movie. So what would your write-in vote be? My write-in vote would be The Woman King, which I really expected to show up here. And when I saw the movie, I was like, that was the aspect of the film that I really, really loved. I was just really wowed by not only how they moved in these garments, but again, the culture that it was showing and sharing to the audience. I thought it was just fantastic. What would your write-in vote be? That's my write-in vote too, Gersha Phillips for The Woman King. I feel like a lot of thought went into these costumes. And the thing that I noticed immediately when I saw the film was how thoughtful the costumes were around rank. So all of these women, they're in the Agujie tribe. They have different ranks, and Naniska, the Viola Davis character, I remember like her costumes being more elaborate, and how the other women, their costumes were a bit simpler. But I, I love the use of colors and fabrics. I thought it was beautiful, and yeah, I wish that that was here too. These nominees are really strong. I would say another one, though, that I love that was never going to get in in a million years is Bina Daigler's work for Tar. <laughs> You know I had to mention that because I dress like Lydia Tarr, but I am obsessed with all of the looks in this movie. The trousers, the button downs, the turtlenecks, the wool coat. If anyone out there knows where to find the black Rangers baseball cap that Lydia wears, please let me know. I have been scouring the internet. I've looked on eBay. I've looked everywhere. I can't find it. So let me know. I mean, maybe not in a million years, but we have that intro scene of them making the suit and i feel like the academy loves when they self-reference certain aspects so i mean i feel like it Mm -hmm. had somewhat of a shot but it is very dialed back and not showy which is kind of how things go i just love when people don't have color in their wardrobes just like lydia so (laughs) so what do you think should win 
contrary to what I just said about my own personal wardrobe, <laughs> I love the use of color in film. And I think that the costumes and everything everywhere all at once are really striking. There are so many of them. And I think, again, the way that Shirley Carada used her own sensibility as a stylist and infused that into her work here as a costume designer to really think thoughtfully about what these characters would wear across the multiverse and creating these instantly recognizable looks for Joe Boo, for Stephanie Shu, but also... <laughs> Like you mentioned, costumes that people will wear for Halloween. Hmm. I saw someone dressed as the Jamie Lee Curtis character at the screening I went to last week. So <laughs> it's happening. I agree. I love everything everywhere. I would also love Black Panther Wakanda Forever to win. I know Ruth Carter won for the first film and, you know, maybe she has a leg up on everybody because of that. Not necessarily, but... I think what she does in updating the costumes and redefining really what Wakanda is in this new world, I really loved it. And then adding this other element, these other tribes, the telekineal, and creating this entirely new look was just extraordinary. So I love her work there as well. Next up, we have production design. Here we have the Art Directors Guild, who will announce their winners on February 18th, and the Set Decorators Society of America, who will announce their winners on February 14th. Last year at ADG, Nightmare Alley, Dune, and No Time to Die won. Dune was our winner at the Oscars. And at SDSA, being the Ricardos, Dune, No Time to Die, and the French Dispatch were the winners in their categories. So I think if you want to look here at the guilds, see maybe what wins both. And that will be a good way to predict. Our nominees here, we have All Quiet on the Western Front, Avatar the Way of Water, Babylon, Elvis, and the Fablemans. Getting right into All Quiet on the Western Front, Christian M. Goldbeck is our production designer. This is his first nomination. And Ernestine Hipper is our set decorator. This is also her first nomination. She was also nominated at SDSA for TAR. It's a big year for the Germans at the Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> so I know you love this movie. What were some of your favorite sets from the film? Something I loved learning about were the trenches themselves. They shot this on an airfield that Christian found. It was basically an area of three by five football fields on this abandoned airfield in the Czech Republic. So again, the way they mask that space, that somewhat small space, into feeling like this expansive battlefield was one part that I loved. But in the trenches themselves, of not only designing them, but having to figure out how wide to make them, they were wider than normal because they needed to fit the characters in there, the actors, and then also this camera that would have to move seamlessly from the trenches and then out of the trenches. So it was really cool learning, and we'll talk about that with James Friend in a little bit, how they got the camera to move. But another aspect was the soil. They wanted the color to look right, which here it was too light, so they brought in darker soil to give that cold appearance. And then bringing in the soil, they had to layer it so that the actors and the crew could actually move because the soil itself, even though it was frozen, was way too soft when they had manipulated it. So kind of like Dune last year reminded me of learning about the thumper and how they placed that underground 
and it made the sand vibrate differently of where it was placed. They had to build roads and they would pack different kinds of soil or mud so that one, you get the appearance of this battlefield, but then two, it's functional and they can actually move around it. So yeah, I love that. Apart from other aspects like the shrapnel or the forests and how that mirrors like the isolation of the soldiers themselves. But what about you? What were some of your favorite sets? I really love that. I think that the trenches and how those look and feel, that's the biggest thing with the production design for sure. The only other one that I will point out that I think is really successful is that the change that they made from the book is how this Daniel Bruhl character is used, Matthias Erzberger, and how we see the people who aren't on the front lines during the movie and the rooms that they are in with that character. He's this official who is, you know, we see all of these like high up German officers who aren't on the front lines. And we get to see the contrast of how they're living with how our soldiers are living in the trenches and how they're fighting and they have this mud caked on their face and they're in, again, like this pure hellscape. And these other men are in this beautiful room with this blue carpet and things are velvet and it's just really beautiful. There's all this antique furniture. It has this opulent look. And I love that contrast that's created there with the production design. Next up, we have Avatar The Way of Water. Our production designers here are Dylan Cole and Ben Proctor. And our set decorator is Vanessa Cole. This is all of their first nominations. So what were some of your favorite sets in Avatar The Way of Water? I think what's interesting about Avatar The Way of Water is that everything had to be built from scratch. They were building and designing things that were brand new. And I liked how Ben Proctor and Dylan Cole talked about how they worked with James Cameron and how James Cameron specifically said, like, my designers have so many good ideas, I could never make a movie big enough to incorporate all of their beautiful designs and ideas. Like you said, creating this from scratch, having 63 different sets, including some from the first movie, including vehicles or props, just sounds like an immense amount of work. And they not only had to create the universe, but in the different ecosystems, they needed to understand or rather define how the creatures interacted together. So that affected what these sets would look like or the parts of Pandora that they created. So they actually did have a scale, a one-sixth scale version of the Metkayina village, which helped them further this notion of interconnectedness that they created from the first movie from the Tree of Souls and Ewa. That's why they have these walkways all interconnected, kind of like neurons too, to show how these people live together and basically breathe together as a society. So yeah, I really love that, you know, while things were added later in CG, it's still layers upon layers of figuring out not only what this world looks like, but how it functions. And always going back to nature being the core theme mm -hmm. of these films and using that as the ultimate reference point for their designs, I think, really comes through here. 
Next, we have Babylon, our team here. Florencia Martin is the production designer, and Anthony Carlino is the set decorator. They are both first-time nominees. I love the production design in Babylon. What were some of your favorite sets from the movie? I mean, obviously, that opening party, it's just such a boisterous scene itself and the way you experience it too with the camera you really get to see all these nooks and crannies before and during the party and then after the party as well of what the space actually looks like and I liked learning that you know a lot of these productions were done during COVID and they actually used the interior of the Ace Hotel in LA for the party and they redid some of the doors and to make it look like this opulent space but martin herself wanted it to look like a golden interior and she wanted this party to glow and i think it absolutely does that one other favorite scene of mine and set was when they're in the desert they have this huge battle going on and they have 900 extras there just to get this one shot of them kissing with everything happening in the background but when you're walking through the sets of the different productions happening and everything is just is just so different i love to quote that martin said about this scene in particular which was quote it really represents the ethos of what it felt like with these dreamers who are fabricating their environments and destroying them at the same time so i think that's also a great metaphor for the film itself babylon and what Hollywood was doing, you know, and people wanting to become a part of it, but also how destructive it was. Yeah. One of the things that Florencia Martin talks about is how important it was for her and Damien Chazelle to convey this idea that anything could happen in Los Angeles, especially at that time. So it really was the city that was being built from the ground up. And I like how she used different architectural styles to tell us more about the characters. So she quoted Annie Hall, actually, in that movie, Alvy, when he's talking about L.A., he says, oh, you know, L.A., you know, you've got the French next to the Spanish, next to the Tudor, talking about this this architectural blend in a city and how she wanted to use that idea and put that into the movie where you have Jack Conrad, who lives in this Spanish-style home, which is what was really popular for movie stars of the period, and like John Gilbert, and for Eleanor St. John. The Jean Smart character, her office is Victorian because she is sort of of this old guard. And then you have Manny when he has his home after he becomes a studio exec. It's craftsman. It's sturdy and strong, but also pulled back. And they thought about how that would have been a home that a studio would have given him, you know, as part of his position there. So I like how she really thought a lot about um, different architectural styles in LA. So I would say like all of the homes of the characters are really, really unique. And the contrast also between that first version of Kinescope where Nellie shows up on her first day to the last shot of the very developed Kinescope when Manny returns to LA in 1952. Yeah, and having 120 locations just... Again, the breadth of material here is so vast. And they also used equipment from the period. So in a similar way Mm -hmm. that we talked about sound with Elvis, using the same microphones, they got period correct lighting, camera equipment that they retrofitted so that anything that you see in those scenes prop-wise is historically accurate. Amazing. 
Next up, we have Elvis. The production designers here, we have Catherine Martin. This is her fourth nomination, and she previously won for Moulin Rouge and The Great Gatsby. And then Karen Murphy. This is her first nomination. She's been the art director for some Matrix films, Chronicles of Narnia, and then coming up, Chevalier and Night Bitch, which I wanted to mention. <laughs> Thank you for your work there. <laughs> <laughs> some of the older movies won, too. She was just in a different part of the department than being an actual nominee. And then the set decorator, we have Bev Dunn. This is her second nomination, and she won previously for The Great Gatsby. So what are some of your favorite sets from Elvis? I think that the work here is really impressive. There are a number of sets that, once again, showcase Catherine Martin's talent and vision mm-hmm. here as a designer. One, you're recreating Graceland. This is one of the most visited tourist destinations in the U.S., Thousands of people go to Graceland and see where Elvis lived in this estate. And recreating that is a big deal. And I think that they did a really great job. She based a lot, yes, on her research with the archives, but also looking into how Graceland was, as she put it, a symbol and expression of Elvis's success. So recreating it, but also using her own personal details to make that set come to life I feel like is a really big deal for Elvis fans and part of the reason I think why Elvis fans love this movie the world Mm -hmm. feels like it honors him and is an expression of him and I I also think that she did a great job with his Vegas residency so any of the stages there his room in Vegas it's just such a different interpretation than Anything that we see in the 50s and the 60s as we're looking into this movie and we really see it as this, I don't know, it's a its a much darker expression of that like gaudy Liberace type of Elvis that we see at this point in the film. Yeah, and they mirror that as well in Graceland. And I think she does a really good job of capturing that essence, but then also all of the updates it had throughout the years. I also want to note that this was mostly shot in Australia because of the pandemic. But yes, Martin traveled to Graceland quite a few times to learn about the home there. And the sourcing that she did with Boz and Karen in Australia, like they found 300 cars and bikes from car collectors that were period correct. Again, one of my favorite sets is the recreation of the comeback special and seeing the Elvis and the red lights in the background when he's in that white suit, I think is just a such a beautiful look and frame that they get. But the detail and the design of everything, I mean, it really does show you what Lerman loves and what his movies are like of mm-hmm. all of this opulence and so many details in every corner of the frame. Oh, I love production design. I think because I love architecture and antiques so much. Mm-hmm. I just, I love learning about all of this. Our last nominee here is the Fablemans. We have Rick Carter as the production designer. He has been nominated five times and he won for Avatar and Lincoln. And Karen O'Hara is our set decorator. This is her fourth nomination and she previously won for Alice in Wonderland. This is Rick Carter's 11th movie with Spielberg. What did you think of the production design for the Fablemans and what were some of your favorite sets? I feel like compared to some of our other nominees, the production design is somewhat less showy. 
mm-hmm. but I love in what it's doing in not only representing Spielberg's life, like he and his sisters showed pictures to the production designer and the set decorator, but the different homes that he lives in too, they wanted to represent who he was and who Sammy is in the film during these three different periods. So they actually did a quite a bit of work in manipulating the houses and changing both the exteriors and the interiors to look and function how his childhood homes did. So I love that. That is really giving us a snapshot of Spielberg. And I know he talks about how this movie is really personal to him, but even these minor elements, which I feel like in a movie you wouldn't necessarily have to get across, that even the smallest of things made him feel like this movie put him back at home. So I love that. Some other sets in particular, I love Monica's over-the-top, like, super Christian bedroom. I love that. Yes. (laughs) That is some levity for us in the film. Not only all the pictures of the men on her wall and her saying, like, it was the super young guy that Jesus was, and then they pan, and it's this large heart above her bed. (laughs) (laughs) Just so much. What about you? What are some of your favorite parts of the production design here? I love that one too. I feel like that that part of the movie is just a just a joy. And Chloe East, her performance is top tier. If we're giving Judd Hirsch a nomination for his short scene, maybe we should have considered Chloe East. I don't know. But one thing that I liked about the Fablemans was something that Rick Carter said, which is that the Fablemans, the production design is the opposite of something like Avatar, which he previously worked on. He said The work was designed to not be seen. If you notice production design too much, it takes you out of the movie. So I feel like that really goes with what you were saying about this being a more understated film when we think about the production design. But I really love that all of these homes feel very lived in and very authentic to where Sammy is in his life growing up. So in particular, these three homes, first one in New Jersey, then the second one in Arizona, and the third in California. And I like learning that the California rental house was actually not based on something that Spielberg actually did in his life. That was a construction for the narrative. So even though a lot of this movie is based on his personal story, that home in particular, in its darkness, in the fact that none of the kids like it, and it only exists for the narrative, I think. It really works as this space to show what Sammy's going through in California and how when you think of Spielberg, you might think of, oh, California is the the land of hopes and dreams. It's where he became the filmmaker who made Jaws and E.T. and found all of this success. But it was important to show how difficult it was at first and how challenging that was for Sammy to go through this transition, not just with being bullied and not knowing who he is, but going through his parents' divorce and just feeling this like cloud hanging over him. I feel like the house like really exemplified that mm-hmm. further. So what would your write-in vote be? Two of my runner-ups here. I have Do Revenge from Netflix. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love the production design here, creating this school in Miami. And it's just such a good throwback to... The films that I grew up with, those great rom-coms, it's so colorful and vibrant and like works so perfectly. I also love the production design in Don't Worry Darling. We have these beautiful Palm Springs homes 
the architecture is just something that spoke to me immediately when I saw this movie, despite all of my concerns and issues with the story itself. I think it's it's a beautiful movie to look at. But my winner here is Jess Gonshore for White Noise, just for the supermarket alone. That grocery store mm-hmm. is immaculate and bright, and I love the product placement. It's very, very 1980s, but just how all the products are stocked perfectly the entire time. So even if a character takes a cereal box off the shelf, let's say, it's still perfectly stocked. Nothing is missing. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my vote would go to White Noise as well, if only for that final sequence. I love the song. I love where they are and then their choreography as well. It's just a perfect way to end this mood piece of a movie. And what do you think should win? I am going to say Avatar, The Way of Water. I think having to create something solely based on imagination and from a blank page sounds the most daunting. There is obviously a lot of other good work happening here, but that to me and seeing the process of layering the universes and bringing it to life really astounded me. What about you? What do you think should win? I think that Babylon should win, not just for the volume <laughs> and you mm-hmm. know the, the creation of all of those sets. I just, I like the way that the historic settings are used to show us where Los Angeles was as a city at the time. I feel like it's really smart and using this blend of architectural styles wasn't just something that made me happy watching it, but was something that strengthened the characters. And even if you don't like Babylon, I think it's hard to deny the production design. I like that pick and I do agree. You know, while there are some parts that are conflicting I think the positive to that side is that is because of the detail in the movie Mm -hmm. and how those components work. And our final category for today, we have best cinematography. Our guilt here is the American Society of Cinematographers. This ceremony is on March 5th, so a week before the Oscars. And last year, it matched with the Oscar itself going to Dune. The BAFTA ceremony is on February 19th, and the nominations there are All Quiet on the Western Front, The Batman, Elvis, Empire of Light, and Top Gun Maverick. So there's a little bit of a crossover. The Critics' Choice winner went to Claudia Miranda for Top Gun Maverick, nominated at the BAFTA, but not here for the Oscar. So our nominees, we have All Quiet on the Western Front, Bardo, or False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths, Empire of Light, Elvis, and Tar. Starting with All Quiet on the Western Front, our cinematographer is James Friend. This is his first nomination. What are some of your favorite shots from the film or favorite sequences? The way that the camera moves through the trenches, which you talked about with production design, I think is really effective. The way that James Friend tracks the actors moving through these trenches and just how packed they feel. So they shot with the Alexa 65, which he said gave them a very wide field of view, which helped with this to show everything on the frame. And it mostly takes place outside. So you have these beautiful shots of nature, but also you really get into the muck and the mud of the war. One of my favorite shots in the movie is actually almost a a direct 
comparison of Vittorio Storaro's work in one of my favorite movies now, The Conformist, where you see these characters in the trees and it looks like a prison. It looks like they're in a different type of prison, even though they're in nature with the ways that these bare trees and tall tree trunks are just in between them. It's really beautiful. So I think that that is probably my favorite shot in the movie. I love a lot of the close-ups on the characters. I think that they're used very effectively here as well. So I think that it does remind me of the cinematography of quite a few war films that we have, in particular Deakins' work on 1917, but that doesn't mean I think it's, you know, a rip-off or anything like that. I think the cinematography is strong, but what did you think of the cinematography in All Quiet? I really like it here as well. Adding on to what you said, they really only used one camera so that we, as the audience, put ourselves into Paul's point of view very easily and quickly and naturally. So in doing that, like I mentioned with the production design, they had to be able to move the camera and they used the stabilize, which is this handheld gyro stabilizer in order to move it in and out of the trenches and during these tracking shots to stay with Paul on these long takes. And this is different from Steadicam, which is something that one person can hold. And again, this was too difficult to use and to move with because of the terrain itself. So the Stabilize, which they kind of used on a pipe that two people would carry and run with, was similar to what Deacons used on 1917 as well. James Friend also mentioned some of his inspirations for this movie. He didn't really want to draw from the original All Quiet. He had seen it, but he didn't want to make too many comparisons to that movie. And I think it feels fresh in that way. But he did find inspiration in Come and See, and then Apocalypse Now, Paths of Glory, and the documentary They Shall Not Grow Old. I need to mention Come and See. Oh my god, I love Come and See. It is one of the most brutal movies, if not the most, that I've ever seen. And the comparisons between Paul and the main characters and how they age during the movie, it's harrowing. And I think they're both doing similar things here in making this anti-war film and showing how it affects not only the soldiers, but the people around them too. So I love that he drew inspirations from there and this very naturalistic point of view. Well, and you mentioned Apocalypse Now, which was shot by... Vittorio Storaro, who shot The Conformist. <laughs> there you so go. So it all, it all connects. Circle. <laughs> I don't really have one particular favorite shot here. I love all of the tracking shots because of the design and because we get to move with the soldiers and see what they're seeing. I think it gives us, like the camera and the lens that they're using, this very complete picture of the battlefields of these settings that are really chilling. Our next nominee is Bardo, or False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths. This was shot by Darius Kanji. It's his second nomination. He was nominated previously for Evita. We talked a little bit about the cinematography in Bardo when we reviewed the film on one of our episodes from the fall. But what are some of your favorite shots from the movie? What do you think of Kanji's shooting style? Everything like that. So he also used an Alexa 65 to give this like bigger than life surrealist image and using wide angle lenses with deep focus helped that. 
I love his contrast between the intimate versus the surrealist and what he called mixing reality with the poetic and the way that he talks about this whole production and how they utilize different methods for moving the camera like stabilizing rigs, cranes, dolly tracks, and drones is really creative. You know, they had to figure out how they wanted to capture and show this film. So I like that everything was really varied. One of my favorite sequences is when they're in the California Dancing Club. They have 800 extras and it's this one very long take. And he talks about having to hide light sources so that you could see the depth of this space. So I liked hearing how inventive they were with the spaces and the cameras and dealing with interiors versus exteriors and the lighting. Yeah, the long take that you're talking about, the way that they got that long take, their camera operator, Ari Robbins, who helped Mm -hmm. Linus Sandgren on La La Land, called that machine that they used the monster. (laughs) So (laughs) for any of our listeners, they used an Ari Trinity rig, which is a combination of Steadicam and a gimbal to shoot this scene. And I love that they called the monster. It's very fun. But I think some of the shots in Bardo are so beautiful. I do not love the wide lens look with that deep focus that they wanted to achieve. I completely understand why Inyaritu wanted it to feel like this dream and to have this surrealist quality to it. I think that fits so well with the themes of the film, but it's a little disorienting for me to watch. Mm -hmm. It's just not, not what I prefer. But my favorite shot in the film, though, is at that club at the party in Mexico City where you see all of the background extras. You see this club full of people dancing and celebrating. And then the way that the light is reflected off of this disco ball onto Silverio, mm-hmm. it looks like a full moon. It's really beautiful. And it, I think, further emphasizes in Ritu's ideas here that this film exists in this Bardo-like state. It's in between the real and the surreal and in between something that we actually physically experience in the world and a dream in between life and death. Next up, we have Elvis. Our cinematographer here is Mandy Walker. This is her first nomination. She is the third woman in history to be nominated in this category behind Rachel Morrison for Mudbound and Ari Wegner for Power of the Dog. So Elvis won the Camera Image Audience Award. Not necessarily a predictor for the Oscar, but just wanted to note that here. What are some of your favorite shots or sequences from Elvis? I really think that Mandy Walker does a great job of capturing Elvis on stage, specifically from these different angles where you can see the audience reacting to him, where you can see his power on stage. There's a really beautiful shot of him actually performing and it's it's from behind it's from the 68 comeback special and you just you really really feel his influence there and just the the magic of live performance with this trick that she does with blocking and with the light that shot was really effective just talking about the style she used as well when they go to vegas she used an anamorphic lens and replaced all of the glass with old glass from the period so that it would look period correct but anamorphic also gives this beautiful glow to it so i like that in at that point in elvis's career that was the style that she was she was looking for i think any recreations that she did of elvis's live performances were particularly tricky but also 
really successful, Lerman wanted her to depict things exactly as they were from concert footage, from documentaries that previously existed. So to make the light sources similar and the angle similar to make sure that everything was accurate. And she hadn't done any of that before. She had never shot a concert film or a musical in that way. And she, I think, really pulled it off. I sound like a broken record because I've mentioned this in every category we've talked about today, but (laughs) I like how Walker used different lenses for the different parts of Elvis's life. So it was more spherical at the beginning, which gave this desaturated look. And then you mentioned the anamorphic lens when he's in Vegas. Then she uses a deeper field of view when Elvis gets to Hollywood. She also recreated the glass you talked about for this Petzval lens, which was from the 19th century. This was used in dreams or when he was unstable or different drug experiences to give this distorted appearance. One other thing I love that Walker worked with Lerman on was storyboarding shots and then creating sets around how they wanted the camera to move. So some of these oneers were done only because they made the set around them. And they didn't make the Beale Street set, for example, until they had storyboarded and figured out how they were going to shoot it. So I loved that, you know, it's not that one always comes before the other. It's that this was a very collaborative experience. And that's how everyone speaks about it in interviews, that everybody did have say along the way. And everything is very interwoven. Next up, we have Empire of Light. This was shot by the legendary Roger Deakins. This is his 16th nomination. He won previously for Blade Runner 2049 and 1917. Check out our episode last year on Roger Deakins, where we dive into his career and share some of our favorite films of his. But what did you think of his work on Empire of Light and maybe what were some of your favorite shots? I mean, as a movie, we didn't expect this really to show up, but you had mentioned, you know, you can't ever count out Roger Deakins, and that is just absolutely true. All of his movies are brilliantly shot and look so beautiful. And here, I love how he made this seaside town look so magical and be period correct for the 80s. The one thing I like that Deakins talked about was figuring out the lighting because they shoot interior while you still see exteriors and vice versa a lot of the time and the light grading with that was very difficult so he used leds inside in this other set that they built a few doors down because the theater couldn't accommodate the space that they needed for the entryway but even though the leds weren't period correct they could still manipulate the light to look conventional for that time I think how they shoot the theater itself inside, all of the red velvet looks exquisite, and the way he shoots it when it's full with everybody is also really beautiful. Deacons has this way of making everything just look so crisp, but like it has this warm glow to it, Mm -hmm. which is what I love about all of his films, whether they are films like Empire of Light that are much smaller, or films like Blade Runner 2049, which are on this grand scale with a much bigger budget. And I think he's so good at centralizing the characters in his work. So he, in addition to like talking about the lights, he talked a lot about how he was very hung up on certain props that were used and how they would affect the way that the light would, 
you know, reflect on a particular character or show a particular character's emotions. And, you know, we talked about with Bardo how Darius Kanji um, used another camera operator. And that's very standard for cinematographers to have a different, another camera operator. Deacons is his own camera operator. So he, I think, feels very connected in with the characters. And for Olivia Coleman, for instance, he talked about how the curtains in her apartment had to be a specific texture and have a certain density so that when the light would come in or hit a certain way, it would show her face in a particular way. But he does a lot of prep to make sure that those things are all all perfect in working with the production designer and set decorators. But yeah, it, it always goes back to how the lights make the characters look in particular moments. The lighting in particular in the apartment when all of the shades are drawn and it's really dark and you have that one light over the table that mm-hmm. shows Coleman when she's in this different state, how it lights her face is really scary but it definitely for that moment fits the character perfectly. I love that too. Mm-hmm. I, I love all of the exterior shots of the cinema too. One of my favorite shots is when we see the empire and it just pulls you in. I think he does a really great job of shooting the exterior and the interior of the cinema as a place that calls you home. And he talked about that as being a safe haven for Hillary, the Olivia Coleman character. Mm-hmm. Okay, our final nominee, we have Tar. Our cinematographer is Florian Hoffmeister, and this is his first nomination. So at Camera Image again, this won the Golden Frog, which is their top award. So what are some of your favorite parts of the cinematography for Tar? How much time do we have? (laughs) Not much. (laughs) So I love the cinematography in Tar. It is one of my favorite nominations Overall, I screamed when this one was announced. I was so excited. But I think that Florian Hofmeister does such a great job in making this film all about Lydia Tarr. And everything that he does to open the film in this way, I talked about this with editing with Monica Willie, but getting that shot of her from someone else's phone going to the credits, but then that opening seeing Lydia waiting to go on stage, you find out everything you need to know about this character. It's almost like he's shooting her like she's an athlete waiting to go out onto the field. You feel so much in that moment just seeing her getting ready to go out there. And one of my favorite moments in the movie, and I think it's something that everyone talks about, is the Juilliard scene, which was a oneer, And the fact that the camera has spent so much time in the talk with Adam Gobnick, very close to her. Mm -hmm. And then in the Juilliard scene, the camera's pulled back and tracks her at a distance, almost like it's afraid of her. But also like you're supposed to see Lydia in all of her power. And he mentions that Lydia Tarr has two states of mind. He said one was about appearances, such as what we see at the beginning of the film. So this is when she's on stage and when she's at Juilliard. She's catering to this narrative of what she thinks she is and what other people think she is. And then he said the other is the private tar. He said that's when she's anxious and the audience can observe that some of those feelings where the narrative is unprotected in those moments when she is by herself or with her lover. 
So I love how he balances the public and the private personas of Lydia and how he uses the camera to do so and where he places the camera to make us feel a certain way about her and Mm -hmm. what she's up to. I could just read on and on and on about this movie because everything that Florian was saying was just so fascinating. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because of how the movie makes you feel. He said he wanted the camera to have this observational attitude, but also convey this visual intimacy. But by doing that, he didn't want the camera to judge her. He wanted the audience to make their own inferences. And in having a neutral camera, he wanted Lydia and her actions to speak for themselves. I thought that was brilliant because you really do as you have this mostly static camera and these long takes, you start to feel in real time of who she is and how she functions. And I think a great scene of that is the Juilliard scene. And, you know, something Deacons talked about in interviews was people asked him what his favorite shot is from a movie or from all time. And he like doesn't like answering that question because it's like, you don't want to notice a shot. You want it to feel seamless. And the first time I saw a tar, I didn't even notice the scene was done in one take like that's how immersed I was and I had to think back and once I saw it again I was like wow just the way the camera moves and you know you're always on Lydia but one quote he had from this scene in particular which in thinking about it I was like wait how are they pulling this off and he answers that in this quote so he says then you had the focus puller and socks running after the camera and a boom operator trying not to get filmed dot 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 while you have this amazing actress immersing herself in this performance so yes you had people in socks because you were there it was all filmed at one time it was like the 12th take and you don't hear them because they're like pettering around in the background behind the camera making sure it's done perfectly so i just absolutely love that and we'll have to rewatch very very soon I'm like, should I watch it tonight now? Oh, it's, <laughs> it's so... Being on Peacock, it's so easy. It's like, why not just put it on? I know. I'm. It's so tempting, though, to pause. I like paused it the other day and was mm-hmm. reading the Wikipedia entry about her. I was like, this is unhealthy. I need to stop. But <laughs> <laughs> not to, you know, to step on the question Roger Deakins doesn't like, but do you have a favorite shot from the movie? Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I can't help but say my favorite shot is when she's conducting and we get this really low angle of her Mm -hmm. just filling the entire frame, you know, from wing to wing, her arms stretch. And I feel like it's such a powerful image for who she is. But I mean, other favorite moments is the final tracking shot as she's reading that final monologue and, and she says, you know, let it not judge you. It makes you think back throughout the entire movie and like her being judged or her judging other people so yeah lots of smart choices with the camera for sure do you have any favorites i have so many favorite shots so the first one that i noticed when i watched the film where i thought oh i am going to love this movie was the shot of all of the records on the floor and Mm -hmm. her moving them around with her feet oh i love that i think it shows Everyone who has come before her, all of her influences, all of these men. But it also shows her power because she's moving these records around with her feet. And the way that it's shot from above, it's fascinating. Another shot that I love is when we see Lydia Tarr and she's in the same position that 
Bernstein is on that Mahler record. And she Mm -hmm. looks like she's in an Italian Renaissance painting. It is stunning. The lighting here, she has this glow to her. It's really beautiful. But the shots that have really stuck with me, actually, there's a pair of shots that work in tandem. They sort of operate as mirrors or as parallel images. The first is this shot of the orchestra space. It's near the end of the movie, and Hoffmeister actually shot this on 18 millimeter by a camera that he said was fixed straight down through one of the lighting ports in the ceiling (laughs) of the orchestra. So it gives it this strange effect where you know what you're looking at, but it also almost looks like you're looking at a diorama of some sort Mm -hmm. that you can play with or like a dollhouse in a way that is so beguiling and makes you feel like, oh, you know, this actually might be a moment where she is out of control and it turns out she is. And that shot goes really well with the shot near the end of the women working at the spa when she goes to get a massage. It is so similar and oh, it's just, it's chilling to see just how her world has changed, but also how she interprets that world changing. Does she go and throw up immediately after because she realizes what she's done? I don't think so. I think she goes and throws up because she realizes that she's lost it and it's gone. But it it's all open to interpretation and that's the beautiful thing about this movie and about the cinematography. We could talk about it for years. I feel like we could do another episode on Tar. Yeah, Florian leaves a lot of mystery, even just how he moves the camera, which I love so much. So what would your write-in vote be? There were so many great contenders in cinematography this year. So many beautifully shot films. I have to shout out Hoyte Van Hoytema, of course, for Nope. I would write a Nope in every category if I could. But I'm going to give my write-in vote here to Ed Rutherford, who shot The Eternal Daughter, which is one of my favorite movies of last year. I haven't given it enough. I haven't given it any write-in votes yet. So now felt like the time. It's captured beautifully on 16 millimeter and it has so many inventive shots. There's this beautiful split diopter shot with Tilda in it. The film itself is a gothic ghost story. It just feels like one of those gothic ghost stories that you would have gotten in the 50s. And I I love the bava colors that Joanna Hogg and Ed Rutherford use throughout the film. The lighting is glorious. I I think it's a beautifully shot film. I would also put Nope and Hoyta Up on my honorable mention. I also want to mention Frank Vanden Eden for Close. I think that's, yes, a difficult film to watch, but just absolutely beautiful in how he captures it. But my winner has to go to Arsene Kachaturin for Bones and All, which I think is just one of the best shot movies, not only of the year, but at least since The Tree of Life for me, especially the exteriors where they shoot and how they end the film on that one final zoom in shot is just really touching. And what do you think should win? This is tough. I'm going to say either Tar or All Quiet on the Western Front should win. I love the craft that went into both of those movies. And like we talked about, they're just so vastly different. So it's really hard to choose. What do you think should win? I'm going to help you choose and say that Tar (laughs) should absolutely win this category. It would be one of the best winners in the category's history. Frankly, to me, the way that this film is shot, it is perfect. And it's a different kind of winner. We don't get winners like this. 
-hmm. We get movies that are big and take place outside. And we've had, you know, 1917 and Dune. And we've had a lot of similar looking films win here. And it's time to celebrate interiors. Let's get into the orchestra space. Let's look at these beautiful, brutalist Berlin homes. I love it. And I, I love that the camera works as another character in the film, but is totally non judgmental of Lydia. It's brilliant. Florian mm-hmm. Hoffmeister deserves. Okay, that was our episode on makeup and hairstyling, costume design, production design, and cinematography at the Oscars. We've made it through our technical categories. We have. I think a lot of research is behind us now. Mm-hmm. We will be moving on to the shorts categories, international and documentary feature, animated, acting. We have a lot coming. But yeah, it was fun talking about these and learning really the craft, the heavy amounts of research that go into pre-production and these sets, the design that just really make you feel like you're in these worlds with these characters. Absolutely. I loved talking about these categories today. And next time on Oscar Wilde, we'll be talking about three categories. We have best international feature, documentary feature, and animated feature. It should be an interesting conversation. It always is. (laughs) Well, thank you all for listening. Feel free to rate, review, and follow. If you like our pod, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Oscar Wilde Pod. And bonus content on patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde. We have a fun episode about Oscar nominee Jamie Lee Curtis coming. Yes, I'm so excited to talk about some of her non-nominated films that we really like. Well, thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye.